0: This week's episode of Certify comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ACE the exam. ACE the OCS
1: is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas the author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order
0: your copy today. Again, the name of the book is ACE the OCS and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis.
1: And I'm Amanda and we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi everyone, today we're gonna continue with some wrist and hand diagnoses. Um, We covered fractures at the wrist and hand, so we're gonna go over soft tissue disorders that can occur at the wrist and hand today. There's not a ton of them, but there's a few important ones that I think is important to highlight. Um, Just know this isn't an all-inclusive list, Um, But you'll probably see these ones more often clinically and in your OCS preparations. Um, Just a reminder, we've talked about this in other episodes, but if you're unfamiliar with wrist and hand anatomy, just because you're not treating it a ton, it may be most beneficial to start with a review of those topics before you review these diagnoses specifically. So the first one we're going to talk about is ganglion cysts. They're the most common soft tissue mass in the wrist and hand and are characterized by a synovial cyst that arises from the synovial lining of a joint or a tendon sheath. Some research suggests there may be an association between generalized ligament hyperlaxity and symptomatic dorsal wrist ganglions. The clinical course for these folks is going to be variable, but it's often going to begin small and increase in size. It can can disappear spontaneously, however, they can also reappear spontaneously. The cyst can be painful, and that pain can sometimes increase as they move through those end ranges of motion, which is ultimately what's going to impair their function. They're, occur- they're going to most often occur dorsally in the scapholunate joint, um, but they can also be present between the extrinsic thumb extensors on the radial aspect of the wrist and between the tendons of the extensor digitorum on the central dorsal aspect of the wrist. On the volar aspect, those cysts can adhere to the radial artery or cause, cause ulnar um, or median nerve compression issues. So your differential diagnosis should include solid tumors and proliferative tenosynovitis. Tenosynovitis is differentiated because during tenosynovitis, the cyst moves when the tendons are, like during tendon excursion exercises, but a ganglion cyst should remain stationary. In asymptomatic cases, treatment is not indicated and modalities are usually ineffective. In symptomatic cases, which is generally when these people would be seen, um, they typically have three different treatment options. So the first treatment option is kind of um, uh, like a kind of observation type of thing. So, you know, they just kind of do a wait and see if it becomes, you know, really bothersome, you know, to the point you can't function or you can't tolerate it, come back and see us sort of approach. Then the other two are aspiration or surgical excision. So a study by Head et al. suggests that 59% of cases treated with aspiration will reoccur compared to 21% for open surgical excision. Um, They suggest an average reoccurrence rate of 6% in arthroscopic cases. However, more research is needed on that topic. So I think that that's kind of where that observation component comes in, um, because if they're just going to aspirate it, Uh, like 59% of them could reoccur. So that's kind of high. So that could deter a lot of patients from having it aspirated unless it's really, really bothering them. Um, Should they need to go on to surgery, their post-surgical treatment should include edema management using finger active range of motion exercises and elevation. Active wrist range of motion um, should begin immediately unless surgery is excessive and a surgeon-specific protocol recommends not to do that. Scar management should also begin as soon as the incision is healed to assist in achieving full excursion of the extrinsic wrist and finger flexors and extensor tendons to um, facilitate full range of motion. Complications and risk of surgical excision includes infection, scar formation, which is actually a fairly um, significant risk with any kind of wrist and hand surgery, um, arterial or nerve damage, and postoperative stiffness. Open surgical release carries the highest complication rates, around 14%. I don't think that's anything surprising. That's kind of true of any type of, you know, invasive intervention. The more open and invasive it has to be, the higher risk you carry with complication. Um, The next one we're going to talk about is Dupuytren's disease. So you'll also see this sometimes as Dupuytren contracture. That's how I learned it. Um, But it's characterized as a fibroproliferative condition of the digital and palmar fascia. The symptoms are going to begin as a palpable nodule or mass in the palm of the hand, usually near the distal palmar crease. Progression includes a formation of this cord-like mass that then will travel distally and proximally and eventually that thickens and causes a shortening to create the deformity we see clinically, which is that um, Dupuytren's deformity and its flexion contracture at the MP and or the PIP joints, depending how progressed it is. Patients are often going to present with pain. However, the pain in this, um, in Dupuytren's disease, is self-limiting. So progression for this can be rapid or periodic. And what they define as periodic is that um, sometimes it'll progress, and then it'll have periods of inactivity, and then it'll progress again. Sometimes it'll plateau. And it can be kind of varying ranges of time. It's most often seen in males of Northern European descent. Um, with onset attributed to both genetic and environmental factors, so there's not really one specific thing that could cause this. Prevalence is also going to increase with age, Um, and it's just important to know that other risk factors that are out there about Dupuytren's contracture or Dupuytren's disease really have conflicting evidence. The diagnosis is typically made through clinical examination, including palpation of the nodules, and it's really important in these folks, if you suspect Dupuytren's disease, that you're measuring both um, MP and IP joint active and passive range of motion. Um, you know, kind of like frozen shoulder, we've talked about this. Th- that's a hallmark finding. If they're active and passive range of motion is the same, you can be pretty confident that they have a contracture. Or in the case of frozen shoulder, adhesive capsulitis, but same kind of concept. Um, secondary issues of Dupuytren's disease can include attenuation of the extensor mechanism in zone 3 due to the longstanding PIP joint flexion, They can develop a boutonniere deformity, MP and PIP joint capsular contractures, adaptive shortening of those digital nerves, encasement of digital nerves and arteries in the Dupuytren cords, the flexor muscle tendon tightness, intrinsic tightness and shortening, joint incongruity, and skin contracture, which can result in breakdown and um, impaired skin integrity. Treatment for Dupuytren's disease is improving to now include injections combined with manipulation, needle aponeurotomies, fasciotomies, and fasciectomies. So therapy is usually included, therapy should usually include like edema control post-procedure for these folks, wound care if it's necessary, tendon gliding exercises for excursion. Um, It's also important to note that these folks should, um, have exercises for range of motion of the other upper extremity joints just to prevent them from developing stiffness or loss of motion there, especially at the elbow, um, wrist, those types of joints. And then um, scar management when the patient reaches appropriate healing. So that's the biggest um, recommendation for scar management kind of across all these diagnoses, kind of a side note here, is that you really just need to make sure they've reached the appropriate stage of healing. But most of these wrist and hand diagnoses, if they need surgery, will require some type of scar management um, in therapy. Gentle passive range of motion for these folks should begin three to four weeks post-surgery. And there's no specific consensus in the literature regarding the type of orthosis or the duration of orthosis use following surgery. Um, Alexis, do you have anything to add on use for orthosis with these folks? I don't treat it a lot clinically. Um, you know, I think if you have OTs that work in your clinic, they're probably a better resource.
0: Yeah, I don't, it's not something that I've really treated. So fair.
1: Um, yeah, if you have an OT that works in your clinic, like I know when I was studying for my OCS exam, I picked their brains a bunch, just about some of these risk mm-hmm. diagnoses just to help me study, you know, clinically just to have that kind of base of reference. So it's something that might be helpful to some of you also that don't treat this a lot. The next one we're going to talk about is D. Quervain's disease. So this is characterized by a thickening of the tendon sheaths and an uh, accumulation of moly- mo- mucopolysaccharides, which indicates the mucoid degeneration within the first dorsal compartment of the wrist, which you'll, you'll recall is the abductor pollicis longus and the extensor pollicis brevis tendons. Um, This is another diagnosis that's made clinically. And their clinical presentation is going to include complaints of pain in the first dorsal compartment, tenderness upon palpation along the tendon's course, and tenderness 1 to 2 centimeters proximal to the radial styloid. The Finkelstein's test is the hallmark test for the clinical diagnosis. Um, Imaging will assist in making alternative diagnosis of CMC arthritis or in the case of trauma to rule out fractures. So um, imaging is not going to help you rule in decurveins disease, but it'll help you rule out um, pain that in the same area that's caused by CMC arthritis or a trauma, a trauma injury. Um, differential diagnosis should include irritation to the sensory branch of the radial nerve. And treatment guidelines for decurveins disease are not supported by high-quality evidence, um, more or less fair evidence. So the least invasive treatments that the authors recommend for this is NSAID use, followed by orthosis or corticosteroids. And then um, treatment beyond that would be um, based on whether or not these are successful. So really the research isn't there to suggest um, standard of care treatment beyond NSAID use or corticosteroid. I think that that's really where they try to to leave it. Um, I think that sometimes you'll see orthosis treatment in there just to try to rest it more or less. Um, but D. Carvain's disease is really kind of like a self-limiting type of thing. And then the last one we're going to go over in this episode is trigger finger. Um, it's important to note trigger finger can actually also occur at the thumb. And it's characterized by stenosing of the tendon, which causes a snapping or locking of a finger or thumb during flexion. These um, trigger fingers can be pain painful or painless. Um, and it most often occurs in the palm at the level of the distal palmar crease or at the MP joint. Essentially, what happens is when the patient flexes the fingers, the flexor tendon glides proximally, and then when the patient tries to extend the finger, the tendon or the nodule gets stuck on the proximal border of the pulley, which prevents that finger extension. Um, sometimes in more severe cases, cases, patients will have to manually extend their finger. And the differential diagnosis here should include um, ganglia, lipomas, or tumors. The onset of trigger finger is usually idiopathic, And it's going to occur more often in women than men. Non operative treatment should include range of motion and tendon gliding exercises, modalities if appropriate, orthoses, or injections. Early, more mild cases are those that are typically less than three months in duration and are not associated with that snapping or locking. These um, folks generally do a treatment plan that involves orthoses that holds the MP joint into extension. And those will be worn anywhere from three to six weeks. For folks that have more severe cases or those with symptoms that have been longer um, since onset, longer periods of time, they may benefit from a cortisone injection. It's important to know, though, that the success rates with cortisone injections also in trigger finger, like some of these other diagnoses we've talked about, is really variable. Um, So it's important to note, too, that cortisone injections, especially at the wrist and hand, are not without a risk. The risks of cortisone injection can include a tendon rupture, skin depigmentation, pain, and in folks with, um, especially those with diabetes, it can cause transient elevation of urine and blood glucose levels, and it can cause that subcutaneous fat atrophy. So um, generally, again, we want to be trying to treat trigger finger conservatively. Like all of these diagnoses, though, if that doesn't work, surgical intervention is indicative for these folks. Um... There's two main types of um, surgical interventions. They are basically percutaneous or an open release. And then active range of motion exercises should begin immediately following surgery. And most patients are actually able to cover without formal therapy. So it's not uncommon to not even see these folks postoperatively. Typically, therapy is only going to be initiated if they have complications, at which point the treatment and therapy should focus on their pain control, swelling management, if appropriate, scar tissue management, which is usually a big one, um, range of motion, and stiffness. Strengthening interventions in folks that have had surgical intervention for a trigger finger should be held until three weeks post-op. And you want to encourage the patient to delay or minimize forceful fisting motions, especially in patients who are prone to, like, that triggering effect in multiple digits. Um, I don't think it's super common to have it in multiple digits, but it can occur. Um, So that's kind of a brief overview of some major soft tissue um, diagnoses that you'll see at the wrist in hand. Um, You know, if you need more information on those, you can always reach out to us. This information is available to you also in current concepts as well as numerous other sources. Alexis, do you have anything you wanted to add on uh, wrist soft tissue injuries?
0: Not necessarily. Um, I do want to reiterate your point about if you work. I know when I was studying, I also worked with CHT and, so she had some resources that were really, really helpful for me um, just to kind of get a little bit more information on uh, on some of these diagnoses. Um, I'll also say that with decore veins, um, I know I personally had it when my son started to get a little bit bigger. Um, and then I have a friend who has triplets and she also got it. So I think it's something to look out for in your new moms who are doing a lot of lifting their babies, changing their diapers. Um, like those were the things that were really irritating to my thumb. But as you mentioned, resolved with NSAIDs and I got a little like thumb spica splint, uh, just to give it rest because obviously when you're constantly, and especially for my friend who has three babies, it's really hard to not always be picking up a baby and doing those irritating things. So in those situations, um, I think that's something that's really helpful to, to recommend that orthosis, uh, just to even at just like ordering something off Amazon or whatever. Like it doesn't have to be fancy, but just something to hold your thumb still, um, because a lot of times people that develop that type of, um, you know, pain, they can't necessarily stop what's irritating.
1: Right. And I will tell you, you know, in the literature I was reviewing for this episode specifically, there isn't a lot of specific research on custom orthoses versus over-the-counters. And so just like we would prescribe foot orthoses, you probably want to start with the, you know, most straightforward. You know, if someone really needs a custom, okay, sure. Or for them the CHT, probably have them get a custom made. But a lot of folks are probably gonna do fine with an off the shelf, at least to get them overcome. Mm-hmm. Um I think the biggest things to keep in mind with these kind of diagnoses is just making sure that you recognize what like what the presentation would be and then what mm-hmm. the treatment paths could include. Cause I think in these you're gonna see some variability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, um uh, this was all super helpful and um We have this episode when it goes out should be the first one of 2021. So I just want to remind everyone that we do still have the Patreon group. Um, So I always link that in the show notes. Um, You can feel free to send us an email or if you're a Patreon member, you can message us through Patreon. We will continue doing the one bonus episode a month, as well as the newsletter and the study sessions in January and February.
1: And as always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out.
0: All right. Thanks so much.